Hi there. Yeah, it's great to see you today. It's uh, excellent to have all you guys join us by video. Um, you need a Bible and you need to open it to 1 Kings chapter 17. If you're kind of new to Christianity, well, it's the front end of the book. It's in the Old Testament. It's the front end of the book. Usually you can find a table of contents in the front of your Bible and it'll tell you where 1 Kings is. We're in 1 Kings chapter 17. We're going to study verses 1 to 7. Today. And while you're trying to figure out how to get there, uh, let, me, let me tell you about a weird experience that I had uh, a few years ago. I was leading a team of high school kids on a mission trip to Guatemala. And uh, when we were there, uh, we ended up wanting to go on a day to a town called Chichicastenango, which I, I still love to say, Chichicastenango. And... Um, Going up there was quite a, quite a journey. It's up in the mountains. The reason you go there for most people is because it is a really good taste of uh, the historic Mayan culture. And the people from the, the mountains will come down into Chichicastenango and they'll sell all their wares. And if you've ever been to the two-thirds world, and you, you know what I'm talking about when I'm saying they sell their wares. It's like all these... Um, Tents at a market and huge, huge market and you know, blankets and, and beads and belts and like a- anything you can think of is all there. Um, I'm not really good at the haggling. Like some people love it. They, they go and they, they, they try to um, buy cheap things from people who need the money. So, um, right? Shouldn't we just pay their, anyway. Um, so anyway, we go and we try to haggle. But I, I, I decided I didn't really want to do that anymore, so I wandered around the town a little bit. I came across a Catholic church, and the thing that struck me about the Catholic church is that there were these front steps sort of fanning out in front of the, in front of the church, and on the front steps, they were sh- sacrificing chickens, which is an awful sound. But what piqued my attention was, like, this is a little bit weird, right? Here they are just outside of this church that's supposed to be worshiping Jesus, and they're sacrificing chickens to their chicken god. So there was, a, there was a guy there who had similar skin color to me, and I, so I, I asked him if he spoke English. He said, yes, from the States. And I said, do you know what's going on here? And he said, yeah, actually, um, if you go inside the church, you'll see bull's heads and things coming out of the wall. So what they've basically done is they've taken animistic religion, you know, the, the religion of the people there, and they've married it to uh, this Roman Catholic version of Christianity and mushed it all together, and what, what you've got in the end is they, they sacrificed the chickens in Jesus' name. You call that syncretism. That's a theological word that we use to describe that kind of thing, syncretism. It's the idea of taking one religious tradition and shoving it together with another one so that you end up with something that kind of looks like both of them, but not completely. And it's been the approach that uh, the world has had toward religion throughout all of history. And we, we do it in our, in our culture today. I mean, you can go to other places, you'll find out that, that they do it as well. We do it when we say stuff like, you know what? 
I believe that my words have creative power, that I'm going to speak things out into the, into the atmosphere, and then God, God is going to bring things back to me. There's a book that's been really famous over the years called The Secret. It is not a Christian book. It is sort of new agey book. So I'm going to speak these things out and, and then I'm going to have it come back. But Christian people have picked this up and said, yeah, yes, that's called the law of attraction. And it's a Christian thing. So give me the BMW. And then you, you get it back. But I say, give me the BMW in Jesus' name, right? So I've married Christianity with this American consumerist mentality with some kind of new age power of my voice. And pfft, there you go. Syncretism. Israel struggled with this a lot. If you go into the Old Testament, uh, this, this is usually what they're doing wrong. They are called to worship the one true God, but when the one true God doesn't come through in ways that they think he should come through, they immediately go to plan B, and plan B is usually one of the idols of the people of the land. They've picked up a God from the people of the land, and, and they go and they worship him instead. And so there ends up being a cycle in the Old Testament where... Um, the, peop the people of Israel will, will reject uh, the Lord. The Lord then will send a prophet who will start yelling at them. And they will then repent after a long period of time. And then they will reject him again. And then they send a prophet and then repent. And then round and round and round we go. It's basically the whole story of the Old Testament. The reason I'm telling you all of this is because uh, this act of sending a prophet is an act of love. See, the worst thing you can do for people is not intervene when they're doing something that's going to hurt them. Indifference is hatred. So when God sends a prophet, he's showing that he, that he loves the people. And so this story, the story of Elijah... Is a story of love. It's a hard love. I mean, Elijah's going to say some things that they don't really like. But he's urging them to come, to come back. So, uh, we are starting this new series on Elijah. Uh, we're subtitled, How Long Will You Waver? We just finished a series on money. So, if this is your first time back, congratulations. You picked the right week uh, to avoid the money talk. This is a story about God's intervening grace. And here in it, we're going to learn in this little passage, only seven verses, eight verses, we're going to learn uh, three things. And by the way, just as an aside, I am really, really proud of my little titles here. So just be ready, right? We're going to learn about a jealous God provoked, a jealous for God prophet, and a jealous God's provision. Mm. Right? This just hits you right. You're like, oh, we're in church now. All right, a jealous God provoked, a jealous for God's prophet, and a jealous God's provision. So here's the first of those, a jealous God provoked. Look at verse 1 of 1 Kings 17 with me. What you've got here is a character introduction. You ever watched a movie and they, you know, uh, they, they start by freezing on each character and then a voiceover comes. This is my friend Joe and Joe's got this background and Joe loves this and Joe, Joe, Joe. 
Um, if you ever watched Wiley e. Coyote and the Roadrunner, you know, they freeze on the Roadrunner and give a little, that's what this is. The writer here is trying to say, let me introduce you to the characters that you're going to have to become well aware of in the next several stories. Now Elijah, there's the first one. He comes out of nowhere. We don't know anything about Elijah up to this point. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galilee. That's all we, I'm sorry, in Gilead. That's the only thing we know. Gilead was a mountainous region. We don't know anything else about Elijah. We don't know how tall he was. We don't know anything at all. We do know more about the guy he has come to talk to. Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab. And the people said, boo. Here's why they said boo. Uh, Ahab is a bad king. He is so bad, in fact, that he won an award for badness. I'll show you. In the verses immediately preceding the ones we're studying, okay, you just go back like eight verses in, in the Bible, into chapter 16, one of the things you'll find is this. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. That's a long, that's a long reign. It's a long time to be in politics, right? Like that's a Biden length of politics. I, it's a joke. And Ahab, the son of Omri, can you imagine, you know, here's the first introduction of this guy in the whole Bible. What do we say about Ahab? Well, we say he, he did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Like if you can think of the worst guy in the history of Israel to lead the country, this is him. He gets an award, in fact, for it. He's the worst, the absolute worst. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam. See, Jeroboam was the worst before him, but he caught up with Jeroboam by doing the sins of Jeroboam, and then he went beyond him. He took for his wife Jezebel. Boo, boo. He took for his wife Jezebel, the, the daughter of Etbael. So uh, this guy is her dad, and he is the king of the Sidonians, and the king of the Sidonians is basically named after their god Baal, who we'll learn more about in a second. He took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Etbael, king of the Sidonians, and, and he went and he, and he served Baal and worshipped him. So this is the reason the people of Israel weren't, weren't supposed to intermarry when they come into the land. When the promised land is in the land of Canaan, the first rule was don't intermarry with the people of the land. Because if you intermarry, you know, your wife, she's going to end up saying to you one day, uh, you know, I really miss my old God. Can we just bring him into the house a little while? And then when he gets into the house, he's going to take over the house. You know what it's like, guys. You know, happy wife, happy life. So she's going to come in, she's going to take over the whole, the whole house. And that's what happened. So they served Baal and worshipped him. It's not that they didn't still worship Yahweh. Of course they did. They had the temple and they had all the stuff. But they also had Baal. You know, plan B. 
syncretism. One, two, together with one. He erected, Ahab did, an altar to Baal in the house of Baal. He he built a temple and an altar for him, which he he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an, an Asherah. Asherah is Baal's girlfriend. You worshiped her by a big tree, a pole that was usually right next to the, to the altar of Baal. Because they're, you know, they go together. He made an Asherah. A, a, listen, in case you didn't get it the first time around, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hile of Bethel built Jericho. When Jericho, you remember Jericho, he walked around seven times, walls fall down, veggie tails. Yep, okay, remember all that? So after that happened, what, what the Lord said to the people is nobody should ever rebuild Jericho. Let it forever be a sign to you of wickedness and the power of God to destroy it and stuff. Nobody's allowed to rebuild Jericho at all. The only person who would ever consider rebuilding Jericho is somebody who despises the Lord and his commandments. That's Ahab. He's like, I'm, you know what we should do? We should rebuild Jericho because that would be a great testimony to my name. Everybody will think, what a great king and powerful king. He doesn't even listen to Yahweh. So he rebuilt Jericho. And the rule, of course, was when he rebuilt Jericho, the people who rebuild it are going to lose their children. That's the, that, was the, that, that was the promise that God gave. If you rebuild it, you're going to lose kids. He laid its foundation, this guy who... Ahab, uh, Ahab hired at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and he set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub. It's a good name. According to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. So Ahab, Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Galilee said to Ahab. Okay, you got boo, all right. Here's what he said. He said, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Why does he say dew or rain? Okay, so remember, we've got an introduction. We introduced uh, Elijah. We introduced uh, Ahab. Now I'm introducing Baal. Baal. The God of the storm. The reason Elijah shows up and says this, it's not going to be do or rain, is basically he's saying, I'm going to put your God to the test, the one that you were trusting in instead of Yahweh. We're going to see if he's really alive. He was the God of the storm. If you ever see images of Baal in, in history, he's got a big lightning bolt in, in his hand, uh, lots of sculptures that way. Here's how Baal worship worked. Uh, the belief was that every, there was a rainy season and a dry season every year. And during the dry season, the belief was that Mote, the god of death, had killed Baal. In the rainy season, which is what you want because the most important thing in your whole world was crops, right? And kids, you, you want there to be fertility on the land and on your, on your spouse, And so the rainy season was a sign of that fertility. Moat killed Baal, but then in the rainy season, Baal comes back to life. 
So when things are really dry and, and, the, and, and the dry season's going a long time, you have to convince Baal to come back to life. You have to urge him to come back to life. There's certain ways that you can do this. One of the ways that you could do this is you can dance around in ecstasy and hit, hit yourself and slash yourself with swords. Sounds like fun, huh? Look how much I mean it, Baal. Come back to life. You'll see a picture of this in a little bit when uh, they get up to Mount Carmel. The prophets of Baal will yell a lot. You can also offer sacrifices. I mean, you can offer the chickens on the, on the steps of the temple if you want. If it gets really, really dry, though, and it lasts a long time, you might need to up your game when it comes to the sacrifices. And so you gotta, you got to pick something a little more valuable to you, like, I don't know, your kids? In fact, Baal worship was well known as being uh, the act of worship. Child sacrifice was very common. I care so much about this Baal, I'm going to give you my firstborn. But the most common way that people uh, worshipped Baal was actually by using what's called the temple prostitutes. They would go in to visit the temple prostitutes. And what would happen is that Baal supposedly would sit with his girlfriend Asherah. And they would watch what was going on in the temple between you and the prostitute. And they would emulate it and then the rains would come. So Baal worship was not a really great thing. Are you happy you came to church today? Um, Baal worship, it was not a great it was not a great religion. It was, when you hear about the worship of Baal, you should be thinking, oh, these are the Nazis. These are people who boil children. And what you have in this passage, and here's our fourth, here's our fourth person. What you have in this passage is the Lord, the God of Israel, who, <laughs> he lives. Baal's dead, but God's alive. Lord, the God of Israel, before whom I stand, there's not going to be dew or rain. This is basically the Lord, the God of Israel, saying, all right, game on. I want to fight Baal. Where is he? It's Elijah announcing that he's sick and tired. God is sick and tired of these people running off to this, this stupid Baal, and he wants to fight him to prove that he alone, Yahweh alone, is the one who can care for his people. Seen as a divine intervention, when, when Israel runs to other gods, the true God is jealous for his people. I use that language purposely, okay? This whole story is about how the jealous God comes and intervenes on behalf of the people he's jealous for. That language of jealousy is weird for us when we think about it in relation to God, and yet it's right, it's in the Bible. He's, he's called that. Here's the passage um, when they first come into the promised land, this, these are the rules. When you're there, take care lest you make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land to which you go. Lest to become a snare in your midst, right? Jezebel's a snare in their midst. You shall tear down, not build them up, tear down their altars and break their pillars and cut down their asherim, plural for asherah. Cut them down, for you shall worship no other god for the Lord whose name is what? Jealous. Is a jealous God. Wait a minute, isn't that a sin? Isn't jealousy a sin? Well, here, here's the thing. Jealousy is a sin for you, but not for God. Here's how. Let's imagine that you have a, you know, a 
girlfriend or boyfriend, and uh, you guys get together all the time. It's a Friday night, and you say, what are we going to do tonight? And, and, and he says, hey, I'm really tired. I'm just going to stay here and play this video game like I do every hour of every other day. So she's like, oh, okay, I'll th have fun, have a good evening. So she calls her friends and says, hey, do you guys want to go out? My boyfriend's not, he's not with me tonight, so you guys want to go out? And they're like, oh, we'd love to go out. And so they go to Chili's, because of course, why wouldn't you go to Chili's? So they're, they're there in Chili's, eating their, eating their food, baby back ribs, and in comes her boyfriend, but he's not alone. He, he's with a, another girl. And at first she, think, she thinks to herself, um, well, I don't know, I've never met his sister, maybe his sister. And then he leans over and kisses her, but it's not a sister kiss. And he, she's like, oh my word. So she gets up and she walks over to the table and says, says to him, what do you think you're doing? Now she's jealous. For whom? Well, for herself. She's, he's jealous because she's losing something. I, I want you in my life. I need you in my life. You do something for me. How could you possibly, she might even say, how could you possibly do this to me? Don't you know what you're doing to me? That's the way jealousy works in our lives. But listen, when God goes to that table and they're sitting down with Baal, God comes and says, how could you possibly do this to you? God doesn't, he doesn't need you. He doesn't need me. But you and I need him. So when he is a jealous God, he comes and he intervenes, not for his sake, but for our sake. I'm not going to sit by and watch you run off to this thing that's going to hurt you. What are you kidding? I love you too much. I'm all that and he's not. When you say that, you're a prideful jerk. When God says that, it's the truth. So he, inter he intervenes. He's a, he's a jealous God. God knows his people are running away to something earthful, and so he intervenes because he loves. And we get passages of Scripture that really kind of emphasize this, but we don't even recognize it when we run across them. So one of my favorite passages in the whole Bible is Psalm 23, right? The Lord is my shepherd, uh, shall not want, makes me lie down in green pastures. Right in the middle of that psalm is this phrase, e even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you, you are with me. But in what sense is, is Jesus, the good shepherd, with us? What, what about his presence helps us feel comforted? Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Those are two different things. See, a shepherd would carry a rod because when the wolves come along, you got, you got to have something to beat them down with, right? I mean, you got, you got a big stick, and they come, and you poof. The other one comes, and poof. The rod is not for the sheep, though. For the sheep, he has a staff. You know, shepherd's crook. He has a staff. Now, the staff is really useful because when the sheep who are dumb, I lived in New Zealand for several years, and let me tell you, I learned a lot about sheep there. They are really, really dumb. It, they will wander off and die in a day if you don't watch them. So the shepherd 
when they're wandering off into a place that's dangerous or they're right on the edge of a cliff or something, the shepherd will come and he will bring them back. He will steer them back. In New Zealand, actually, they have this little phrase called rattle your dags. Uh, Rattle your dags. Rattle your dags. It means hurry up. Uh, Here's what it means. Dags are what happens at the back end of the sheep when the sheep has to go to the bathroom repeatedly and then it all gets caught in there. Like I said, it's a great day at church. Right? So it, that's what happens. And so they call those dags. And so when the sheep runs, the dags rattle. Right? So you say, hey, rattle your dags. It means hurry up. I just want you to think about this. So, but what a shepherd will do with the dags, because they get really big. A shepherd will come along, he'll take his staff, and he'll whoop the back end of the sheep. Then the sheep's thinking, what are you doing? I'm, not, I'm, I'm minding my own business out here. I'm not getting lost or anything. And you just whack me in the rear end? What kind of hateful act is that? And the shepherd's like, yeah, you don't know what's behind you here, buddy. Right? We got to get rid of a lot of this. You wonder why. You wonder why, why your life is hard sometimes. Yeah, God's back there. There's <laughs> a lot of stuff in here. Right? He's... Sometimes you go off, uh, go off away, and he's like pulling you back. And when you do, that happens to a sheep. The sheep's like, oh, come on, there's good grass down there. And, and the shepherd's like, if you go down there, you're going to die from the wolves. You do see that most of the things that are happening in your life, the things that you despise, the things that frustrate you, are acts of a gracious God your great shepherd who is steering you in right paths. You and I yell and scream and hold our fists. What are you doing? You ever wonder why you don't get what you want? God's jealous for you. His intervention is not a sign of his distaste or anger toward you. His intervention is a sign of love. Right, second one. A jealous for God prophet. I want to go to the first verse again. Now, I want to show you something that's not here. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain in these years except by my word. Here's what's not here. The Lord, the God of Israel came to Elijah and said, go to Ahab and declare yada, yada, yada. The reason I say that is because that should be right in front of this. When, when God comes to Josh, uh, sorry, uh, Jonah and he says, go to Nineveh, the first verse of Jonah is the Lord, word of the Lord came to Jonah and said, go to Nineveh and tell him off. You do not have this here. In fact, several places when a prophet is called, the prophet is called by God. God shows up to Nathan before he goes to David. God shows up all the time before the people go. He shows up in a burning bush before he sends Moses. Where? Where is God showing up to Elijah? Now look, that, that could be the writer's like, ah, and I can't be bothered to say that anyway. It's just, you know, too many words. 
It might be, hey, we're, just assume it. Just assume that that was a scene that actually happened and that Elijah was minding his own business and the Lord came to him. Or it could be that Elijah, the prophet, was sitting there minding his own business and was watching what was happening in his nation and said, not on my watch. God called me to be a prophet to Israel, to Ahab. I'm not going to sit by and watch this nation go sideways. And so he picks up his little satchel and his stick and he walks right into Ahab and he says to him, look, there's not going to be dew or rain until I say so. Look, it doesn't, it doesn't really matter how he got there. The, the point I'm trying to make is that Elijah was a willing accomplice to God's plans for intervention. He wasn't Jonah. He, he was... He was excited about, about doing this thing. He saw what God was doing and he believed that what God was doing in intervention was what needed to happen. God was jealous for his people and so was Elijah. He knew that false teaching kills. Because that's what this is, right? Isn't, isn't basically that's what it is. I mean, here you got... Jezebel and Baal, or Jezebel and, and Ahab bringing Baal into the worship of Yahweh and they're mushing it together and basically false teaching. They're saying, look, your worship to Yahweh alone is not worth it. It's not gonna work, especially when you need rain to come, you need to worship this Baal as well. So you've got plan A and plan B or plan 1A, whatever. It's false teaching. What are you supposed to do uh, when somebody who's a friend or a brother or sister in, in the faith flirts with false teaching? Are you, what are you supposed to do? Just sit back and watch it happen? Well, there's lots of different ways to view these things, so I guess I'll just watch you go down that hill and die. Should we be commended for our indifference or our sit back on our hands while we watch people Walk away. Should pastors be commended for not saying anything about false teaching and just, let's just stay positive. One, one of my favorite passages, whenever I get together with pastors, at, and I've done some pastors conferences, one of my favorite passages of scripture to, to teach on is actually out of, out of the book of Exodus, chapter 32. Um, it's when Moses goes up on the mountain and he's going to receive the law from God. Remember, the, the mountain is covered with a cloud. He goes up there, and he's gone a long time. Down in the valley, you've got Aaron, like associate pastor, right? Executive pastor, he's down there in the, he's down there in the valley. And the people are looking up the mountain every day, and Moses never coming back. And, of course, if you live in those days, and some guy climbs, climbs the mountain, doesn't come back, you're like, he probably fell. Or he's up there with God, and he's like, I prefer God to those guys. So he's just staying up there. Whatever, they're gone. They're on a trip. We're left all alone without a God to protect us in the middle of this wilderness. We need a God. And so they come to Aaron and they ask him for one. Yahweh on the top of the mountain who's talking to Moses says, hey, do you know what those guys are doing down the valley? I need you to go back down there, Moses, and see because I'm kind of angry because they've turned and made this golden calf that they're now marching around and dancing around and calling it their God. So here's where we pick it up. Verse 19, Exodus 32, and as soon as he came, Moses came to the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger 
burned hot, like Elijah hot. And he threw the tablets, the Ten Commandments, out of his hands. He broke them at the foot of the mountain. He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. Drink it! You want it? Drink it! Love this guy. And then Moses said to Aaron, pastor says to executive pastor, stupid executive pastor. What did this people do to you that you've brought such a great sin upon them? What, did they tie you up? Did they tell you that they weren't going to provide, you know, your pay or something? What? They kick you out of the parsonage? What'd they do? And Aaron said, Okay, okay now, I can see you're angry. Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. We just need to just calm down for a minute, breathe. Moses, you know these guys. You know the people that they're set on evil. You know Joe, right? Sally, Sally. Always set on evil, right? For they... They said to me, make us gods who shall go before us. Remember the pillar of cloud or the, and the fire? and That was gone. They don't have anything. So they came to me and they said, make us some gods. I didn't, I didn't know what to do. As for this Moses, they said, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, well, we don't know what's become of him. Our leader is gone. So, so then I said to them in response, um, let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and, and I just, I picked it all up, and I just threw it in the fire. I just threw it in the fire, and out came this calf. I, blam, there it is. Not my fault. Stupid executive. This is a great act of pastoral malpractice. So is Aaron to be commended for doing what the people wanted by providing them with another God? Well, of course not. And you and I are not to be commended for sitting by and watching and accommodating other people's desires for false teaching. We, we're not, it's not a good thing that we just sit by and watch and make excuses for people who want to add things to the pure, unadulterated gospel of Jesus and inform a brand new religion, but call, use all the same words. And in six months, nine months, whatever, they just fall off the map. Or they call what they believe Christianity, and you and I know it's not. It is not the good deposit we were supposed to guard. There's a, a song that was written a number of years ago. It's, a, it's actually a, a rap by Shai Lin. I don't know if you know him. He's a great rapper, so I'm going to rap it for you now. Not, not really, but kind of, okay? The song is about false teachers, and here's, here's some lines from it. He says, and I'm, I ain't really trying to start beef, but some who claim to be part of the sheep got some sharp teeth. And cats get mean when you criticize them, but Jesus told us, Matthew 7, 16, we can recognize them. And God forbid that for the love of some fans, I keep quiet and watch them die with their blood on my hands. So there's nothing left for me to do except to speak to you in the spirit of Jude 3 and 2 Peter 2. And I know some will label me a Pharisee because today the only heresy is saying that there's heresy. 
I'll dare to be specific and drop some clarity on the popularity of the gospel of prosperity. Dude, and then he goes into names. He's naming names. <laughs> when this song came out, there was all sorts of, you know, hubbub online about how dare you say this? How do you know the, pro, you know, false teaching? You call, you call false teaching. That's just your view and stuff. Shailin had done his homework and he, had, he presented a whole bunch of material saying this is wrong. This is false. And so, and so he names names. People think he's crazy, nuts, wicked, awful. I think he's, he's just avoiding the sin of Aaron. He could have had thousands of reasons for not publishing a song or not speaking out. And yet there he is, Elijah, saying, not on my watch. And you, you should seek. I don't, I don't know what your future is going to hold in regards to church. I don't know what your future is going to hold in regards to listening to podcasts or anything like that. But can I just give you a massive piece of advice? Choose wisely who you hear. Consider what you're listening to. There's no honor in passively watching people run after idols. Elijah's approach is right. He was a jealous for God prophet. All right, last one. A jealous God's provision. All right, so I only went through one verse. <laughs> this is, that, that took a while on one verse. Here's the rest of it. And the word of the Lord came to him. So because Elijah's gone to Ahab and he's told him off. No dew, no rain till I say so. And then the word of the Lord comes to him. See, it's weird. Should have come before. Word of the Lord came to him and he, depart from here. Turn eastward and hide by the brook of Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. Well, why do you got to hide? Isn't God with him? Yeah, but listen, Ahab uh, and, and Jezebel, they are not the kind of people who when you come and you confront them, they're like, hmm, that is a really good point. Let's bring HR in and we can both, we can talk this through and you can give your good points to me and we can dialogue about it so that we can be better, man. Nope, they're like, you're dead. How dare you come in here and lecture us? You're dead. So God's like, get out. Get out of there right away. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You're, you're going to drink from the brook. And I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. Ravens. Ravens. Crows. Scavenger birds. You know, because they're really well known for feeding you and not you feeding them, right? My, my son, Ethan, we, we were in uh, Australia and he was sitting there with a ham, san ham sandwich. I still remember sitting in his little stroller with his ham sandwich because he was really tired of the day we would go into some park. And he was sitting there. And in Australia, they have these scavenger birds. Their ravens are these weird looking birds with these long beaks. And they just sort of wander around. And he was sitting there and this bird walks up to him, looks at him, takes its beak and grabs the sandwich and starts eating it right in his face. And he's looking at his hand and he's like, he starts freaking out because that's what scavenger birds do. They take and eat your food. There's nobody in the world who's sitting down and saying, you know what we should do with Grubhub? We should just get a bunch of crows. We just strap that food to them and I'll take them right there. No, no, because they'll eat it. And yet God's like, no, no, I, I can control the ravens. I'm just, they're going to be my delivery animals just to prove to you that I've got power over everything. 
I'm going to use the ravens to feed you there. And so he went. He did according to the word of the Lord. He went and he lived by the brook Cherith to the east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat. They don't eat meat often there. I mean, it's very rare for them to eat meat all the time. But he gets two meals a day with meat. Bread and meat in the evening. He drank from the brook. And after a while, the brook dried up because there was no rain there's no rain in the land. <laughs> Look, I, I find this remarkable. Elijah knew. He knew it was risky and dangerous to confront Ahab, but he still did it. He didn't, he didn't let his fear of a possible future stop him from being faithful. You know what I mean? The fear of the possible future, like in his mind, he's not an idiot. Somewhere along the way, on he, when he's on his way to confront Ahab, isn't he thinking to himself, okay, when I confront this guy, he's probably going to get angry and I'm going to ruin my life. I could just sit back and do nothing, right? That's the safe approach. But he goes through with it anyway. See, one reason many of us don't make faithful decisions honoring God is because we're afraid of where that faithfulness will lead us. We... we we play fortune teller and let our limited view of the future scare us out of obedience. But listen, our view of the future usually doesn't include the ravens. You, you know what I'm talking about here? Like, okay, we just went through a series on uh, money. You get to the end of a series like that, and we've urged you, I've urged myself over and over again to say, look, you can't outgive God, you can't outgive God, you can't outgive God. And so now you're in a position and you're thinking to yourself, how do I want to respond to that? And in your mind, you're thinking, well, I want to respond in a gospel-sized response. And so your heart is drawn toward what you've read. And yet, while you're sitting there with the money in your hand, ready to give it to the poor or the needy or the missionary or the church, the money in your hand, you're thinking to yourself, okay, but what if I give this? And God doesn't come through. What, what if my kid needs certain fees paid? What if the economy keeps going the way it goes? What if it's really bad and we pay $9 gas? What, what if it gets worse and worse and worse and I need this money in two years in order to do something? I'm totally regret this. So what you've done is you've created a possible future, but it's an atheistic one, isn't it? The same God who has led you all along the way is now not included in the future plans that you've got. This is what happens when you and I are sitting there and we have an opportunity to tell the truth and we know that the truth telling is gonna lead us into some hot water. We, we try to do it gently and graciously, but we know that by telling the truth and saying this thing, it's going to lead to a whole bunch of trouble. And we start thinking out the future, right? If I do this, I might lose my job. And if I do this, my, you know, I'm going to be hated here. I'm going to be treated this way that, that, there. I'm not going to be able to find anything if they do this, if they do this. What if, what if, what if, what if, what if, what if? And so we shrink back from doing the honest, right, obedient thing because of an atheistic future that we created in our heads. But God's got ravens. He's got ravens. Don't forget the ravens. He can take the stupidest scavenging bird, 
flip it around and turn it into Grubhub. Look, I'll finish with this. One of my favorite passages actually in the Bible, I have a lot of favorite ones here in the Old Testament is out of uh, Numbers chapter 13. The reason it's my favorite is because how this whole thing ties together. So follow the story here. People of Israel have come across the Red Sea. They've been led by a pillar fire, you know, and they, God has led them across the land. He's provided them manna when they needed it. He's provided them everything they need in order to trust him and believe that he's going to take them into safety into the promised land. They get to the edge of the promised land and they do the smartish thing, right? The thing that we would do, let's send in some spies. They send them in, the spies come out, here's what they say. At the end of 40 days, they, the spies returned from spying out the land and they came to Moses and Aaron and to all the congregation of the people of Israel in the wilderness of Paran at Kadesh, and they brought back word to them and to all the congregation. And they showed them, look, the fruit of the land. Look at this, look what we found, it's enormous. And they told him, Moses, we, look, we came to the land to which you sent us. It flows with milk and honey, and this is its fruit. However, The people who dwell in the land are obviously strong and the cities are fortified and very large. And besides, we, we saw the descendants of Anak there, those vicious Amalekites. They dwell in the land of the Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites. They dwell in the hill country. The Canaanites dwell by the sea. They're everywhere. And along the Jordan, but, but Caleb, oh, we love him. Caleb. Hold on, everybody. Just, just settle down. Quieted the people before Moses and said, let's do it. Come on, baby. Let's, let's go. Let us go up at once and occupy it. Not, we don't need to wait. Stop talking. Start walking. We are well able to overcome it. We got God on our side. What say you? Well, the men who had gone up with him said, look, we're not able to go up against the people. They're, they're obviously stronger than we are. So they, so they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land, and they had spied out, saying, the land, look, though which we have gone, the land through which we have gone to spy it out is a land that devours, guys, it devours its ha inhabitants. We're, there's just no way. It's going to eat us alive. And all the people we saw in it, they're huge. They're super tall, and there was... We saw the Nephilim, the sons of Anak, who come from the Nephilim. They're just eight, nine feet, they're huge. And we, see, we seemed to ourselves like, like grasshoppers. And so, we, and so we seemed to them. We can't do it. So what have they done? Okay, God, the God of Israel has led them. They were the people who stood at the edge of the of Red Sea and saw it split, Yeah. And then they walked through on dry land. This God delivered them in the most amazing ways. They get to the edge of the promised land. They're like, we can't do it. We can't do it. We can't do it. All right, they'll go back in the wilderness for 40 years. They come back to the Jordan River. 40 years later, they will go across. They're going to now attack Jericho. Veggie tails down. Here we go. Joshua chapter 2. They go and see this woman Rahab who hides them because she thinks that they're going to come and win this battle. And they go and stay in her, her place quietly. Before the men lay down in the evening, she came up to them on the roof and she said to them, the men, look, I, I know that the Lord has given you the land. 
I know it. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants, all the strong inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Look, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea 40 years earlier before you when you came out of Egypt and, and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were, who were beyond, beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. And as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted. And there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in heavens above and on the earth beneath. The Lord went before them and yet they backed out because they believed he didn't exist now. God is on the other side of the decisions that you're making. And he's saying, just be faithful in the decision. I'm not asking you to sort out the future. I'll sort out the future. Make this decision right now. Throw yourself into the hands of the living God who controls the ravens. And trust that he will bring what you need when you need it. Look, where is God calling you to be faithful today? Don't, don't fear. Don't what if yourself to death. We, you don't know the future, but we do know the God of the ravens. He's gone before us. You can never risk too much for Jesus. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your grace and, and, and a passage like this that reminds us again that you are faithful and powerful. Father, we read this stuff all in Scripture over and over again, uh, and we're challenged by the fact that uh, we, we don't trust you. We think that all the ways that you've led up, us up to this point, you're now going to abandon us in this particular moment. But I pray, Lord, I pray that the people of Harvest Bible Chapel will be known for doing the next right thing and leaving the future in the hands of the God who controls the future, who's got ravens at the ready, who's gone before us and is working for our good and his glory. So, so make us faith. Spirit, come. Spirit, come and make us faithful. Give us courage and boldness to do what's set before us with everything we've got and leave the consequences to you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.